Uh, welcome to episode 78 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us, listener. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed a summer break somewhere. I actually just got back from the Alps earlier this week and uh, we'll be hearing a little bit more about that trip later. Uh, firstly, though, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast and I'd also like to thank them for the press event they put on earlier this week. Uh, it was up in London and it just felt so good to have like a normal event again, just meeting up with other people from the industry, you know, normal events. That's what we like. Now, listener, don't forget you can listen to us on Spotify. And if you do enjoy the podcast, why not give us a review or send us a message via social media or drop us an email with your feedback. Now, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the new ski show coming up next month. Uh, summer activities in the outs like mountaineering, e-biking and trail running. And we'll be talking to the founder of Faction Skis. But uh, let's start off by welcoming my guest today. I'm delighted to introduce Steve Morgan, who is MD at Raccoon Events. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hey, Ian. Very good. Thank you. Very good. Thank you again for having me here. No problem. Thanks for joining us. We're also uh, joined by mountaineer Olivia Jane Wood. How are you, Olivia? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me also. Excellent. And also, uh, as a bonus... Uh, we've got uh, Katie Crow from Battleface Travel Insurance. We often record our piece uh, separately, but you're joining us live today, Katie. Hi, Katie. How are you? Hi, Ian. It's, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm well, thanks. Excellent. Well, let's start off with uh, the normal question I like to ask our guests. Let's start off with you, Steve. When did you ski or snowboard last? Oh, God, feels like years ago. Well, it was almost years ago now. So um, actually, the last time I was just just literally before we went into full-on lockdown and it was at Glencoe in Scotland um uh, but I have been to the Tamworth Snowdome since but uh but no the last time on a real mountain yeah Glencoe just before lockdown oh, okay well I mean that Tamworth I think does count because it is on snow but uh, Glencoe oh. the first time uh, on a mountain uh, itself regular listeners will know we've had a few reports about Glencoe including their summer skiing so some lucky people skied there in June of this year and uh, Olivia, what about you? When was the last time you skied or snowboarded? Um, I skied maybe about five years ago in Switzerland. And then I'm just currently learning to snowboard. So I went to the Chill Factory in Manchester maybe last year. Right. Excellent. OK, so you're tra- you're changing. You're moving on from skiing to snowboarding at the moment then. Yeah, I, I fell out with skiing. So now I'm going to try snowboarding what about yourself katie when did you last ski or snowboard last well sadly i wasn't able to go last year because we were booked to go in march april time to chamonix so yeah this um march april 2019 that is like a lot of people you're joining us today uh, to talk about the travel situation so let's have a little chat about that now you know apart from the odd day of summer skiing it's been a long time since most brits have been on the slopes but winter is on the way um, what would you say, Katie, the prospects are for skiing for British people this winter? Well, actually, they're looking pretty good, Ian. Um, Austria and Norway were added to the government's green list in August. And then we had last week's edition of both Canada and Switzerland, meaning that four of the big seven ski destinations are now designated as safe for travel the others being the amber-listed France, Italy and the US. So it's really boosted morale within the ski industry. 
Yeah, I mean, I back that up. Uh, obviously, I was at this Switzerland tourism event and they're very excited about the fact that they're back on the uh, green list again. I mean, essentially, if you were double vaccinated, it doesn't really make so much difference between amber and green, but it does open it up to people who haven't had full vaccinations yet. And I think also uh, I'm right in saying that Italy have dropped uh, the quarantine and arrival that did uh, apply until recently. Yeah, that's right. In the travel update last week, um, travellers from the UK will no longer have to quarantine when they arrive in Italy if they are fully vaccinated and show a negative COVID t test, um, which is really good news for, for travel to Italy. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's certainly positive. I think there's a few small things like in Austria, there is a, a limit uh, in how long it's been since you had your vaccinations uh, before you'd have to show a negative test as well. But to me, it really feels like it's the cost of testing, something that, you know, Battleface did some research on a while ago that that could be a limiter. We just did our summer holiday. For, for us, it wasn't quite so bad. But we went into Spain. We came back from France. And overall, um, as a family of four, that cost us about £380. We wanted a holiday. We were prepared to pay it. But if you're adding on, let's say, £300 or so, to a ski holiday, £75 per person, it's it's fairly significant. Yeah, absolutely. It's extremely prohibitive. And as you say, I, I also was able to go out to Mallorca this summer. And I think testing cost in the region of £600 for that trip. So it's an extremely prohibitive um, you know, thing that's going on for, for all of us travellers. Um, and as, as you mentioned, our research that we did um, last a few months ago uh, revealed that the average Brit is prepared to pay £22 per test. So, you know, the average cost is, I think, in the region of £49, but they can go up to 99 149 um, You have to really do your research and, and look around. Yeah, uh, we, in the end, the tests that I booked were predominantly through, um, through Randox. Uh, through Brittany Ferries because we travelled with Brittany Ferries and there was a discount code with them and actually I just used that even when we weren't travelling with Brittany Ferries because it made it a little cheaper and there had been a few scares about Randox uh, uh, in the uh, press with their yeah. uh, drop boxes you know overflowing <laughs> etc all I can speak of is uh, our experience which was really good in that we did the test we dropped them off we got the results back the next day uh, so uh, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, they're already good. Well, absolutely. I think when you look on Trustpilot, uh, some of the reviews of these testing providers, it's very sort of alarming. So I think you have to go with your gut instinct. And I also use Randox and didn't have any problems, but I know people who have. So um, again, I think it's the luck of the draw. Um, but Trustpilot has some very, very negative reviews about these testing providers. And as you say, a lot of the airlines and um tour operators are teaming up with testing providers, which again, gives the traveler a discount code, um, which enables you to purchase a, a test at a bit of a more of a reasonable price, really. Yeah, another, um, the, the, the tests we took on the uh, return were through a company called, uh, if you want to pronounce it, Cured or Cured, which is a video uh, call where you do your test in front of someone via a video. And those work pretty well, although I, I should point out that you need to book your uh, your test uh, date well in advance, because if you leave it to the last minute, you'll end up like we did where um, you know we were having to do the tests. We had to pull off to the side of the motorway on the way back and uh, do the tests about uh, four in the afternoon um, prior to getting a, a crossing later on, but it worked out. Uh, my brother um, 
had not arranged that. Uh, he was coming back with us and he thought, oh, well, I'll just go into Chamonix on the, uh, you know, a couple of days of the day we're leaving Chamonix and get a test from one of the pharmacies there. And in principle, that was fine. But we just had this really big race, the UTMB, take place on the day before. And there were queues outside the pharmacies from 9 a.m. in the morning. So although it is actually less expensive uh, to get a test, you know, on location, let's say, uh, in France, you can't necessarily rely if it's a peak time on being able to get in when you want to. Well, absolutely. Um, you bring up a very good point again, because um, Spain, you know, we went to Mallorca this summer and Spain asked you to get a negative PCR test 48 hours before arrival. So you have a real rush to then get an express PCR test. We actually had to travel to Bristol. You know, I live in the southwest and we had to do an express PCR test for my two children, which cost £210 each in order to um, meet those requirements. Yeah, well, certainly there's a lot of research required. And I read quite an entertaining article yesterday by Helen Coffey, who is the travel editor for The Independent, who created a new word, I think, called travmin, rather than admin, all of the admin that's associated with travel. And you do have to do your research because there's plenty of uh, different forms you need to fill in. But having having been um, in and out of the country three times in the last six weeks, I've kind of got used to it now. And it's it's not really as overwhelming as it might seem to start off with. So um, yeah, travel is possible. It's looking positive for the winter. Will you join us again, Katie, to give us another update? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. Cool. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. And actually, this this probably seems an appropriate point to mention Afghanistan. You know, this isn't a current affairs uh, podcast, um, but uh, you might think, what has this got to do with skiing? Longtime listeners will remember I interviewed James Wilcox from the uh, company Untamed Borders in our special episode about skiing in Afghanistan. Now, uh, you know, they um, Untamed Borders do a lot more than just ski trips. A lot of their work is about you know enriching the lives of locals, and they've they've organised a campaign to help some of their guides who've worked with them and the fixers who work with them over the years. So what I'm going to do is uh, put a link into the show notes um, if listener you'd like to find out a little bit more uh, about that. Right, let's move back to the UK. Um, I was at a Switzerland tourism event earlier this week. That was for the press. There's more industry events coming up. But I am really excited about the first consumer ski show in the UK for two years. Uh, Steve, you're MD at Raccoon Events and you're the guys who are bringing us the National Snow Show. What can you tell us about it? Firstly, where and when will it be? Cool. Yeah, no, nice one. So it'll be the 23rd and 24th of October and that will be at the NEC in Birmingham. So everyone make sure that you tuned into the website, nationalsnowshow.com. So you can go and get your full details on how to get there and, and what you can what you can find. But there are a number of features, brands, companies and reasons why to come along to the event, ranging from so content side, we have the snow stage. So it's five hundred seat capacity where you have inspirational motivational talks really just getting people back into that vibe and the mood that god we want to get back out onto the mountains which to be honest i don't think is something that we have to do too much of yeah Um, i mean i don't think i don't think you're going to be sure of that desire from uh people who you know people really do want to go out the mountain it's one of the reasons why my feeling is that uh you know this event is going to be really successful because my suspicion is there's a lot of people out there who want to do it. They want to have some kind of contact with the industry uh, and and 
get that excitement building up. 100%, and you're, you're exactly right. So on that, that main stage, we have the likes of Benjamin Alexander, who I know that you've uh, interviewed once or twice on the show. Yeah, he's been on, he's been on the show, yeah, exactly, yeah. trying to qualify for the uh, Olympics um, at, under the Jamaican flag as an alpine skier. Definitely. So, yeah, I'm sure I heard him describe it on your interview as the real life cool running. So, yeah, yeah definitely tune in for, for him to be at the event. Billy Morgan, Shemi Alcott. And we've got guys from Urban Shredders and Mount Noir who are going to be part of our lineup. Graham Bell, Jamie Barrow, Jamie Nichols, um, Katie Ormerod, a uh, couple of wild cards in there as well. So Sir Ranoff Fines will be making an appearance. And if you have a look on our socials, we've sort of announced a new speaker in terms of the fact that it's a silhouette on there so if you can guess who it is we'll be actually releasing the the real the real name um in the coming coming weeks but yeah there's a there's a kind of a mystery speaker who's going to be coming okay okay you're just teasing us there i'll drop that in the show notes if if it's still relevant i mean a lot of those people that you're mentioning uh you know some of them we have interviewed on the show you mentioned Mm. who are a um, tour operator who are, are focusing on diversity and uh, we interviewed them in an earlier episode of the podcast. Graham Bell's obviously uh, been on the podcast a bunch of times and Chevy mm-hmm. Alcott. Uh, I'll particularly be interested to hear what um, Katie Ormerod has to say in the build up to the next Winter Olympics. Yeah. Um, quite a few Olympians clearly going to be uh, around. Well, as you said, Ian, it's it's the first kind of meetup for the industry, consumer and and business, you know, B2B side of it for the last two years. So, yeah, there's going to be a huge hype, huge buzz. And at the point of the event, we'll be four months out from the Winter Olympics. So right. what better what better way to start kick off, you know, that hype and that that visibility for our our sport? Being sort of frank about it, have you mm-hmm. found the response from, you know, potential exhibitors? Because, uh, you know, obviously some people have had budgets cut after a, a tough year. Their you know, destinations and, and brands and retailers, you know, they, are they filling up the space? Definitely filling up the space. Um, so we have the likes of Ski Andorra, France Montagna, Larks. We're just sorting out the deal with uh, GNTA, so Georgia as well, to come along to the event, amongst other tour operators you know like crystal ski holidays otp holidays aosta valley um so no we're definitely filling up but i'm not going to lie at the beginning of when we launched this last year in october yes it was it was a slog i mean we didn't know if we were going to be able to do live events really we didn't know what the international travel scene was looking like so it was difficult yes i'm not not, you know definitely not going to lie but now moving closer to the to the event um you know, everything positivity is opening up people becoming more confident and you can see that with the, the diverse kind of range of uh, exhibitors that we do have at the event cool you mentioned you know obviously a year ago when you launched didn't know whether it would be able to uh, happen you know what are the the kind of covid protocols let's say uh in in place i mean how how is it going to be when uh when we go there do you have to wear masks everywhere or um, what's the situation we will obviously be following all the government guidelines and making sure that you know the venues and and there's in the events industry we have an all secure standard so that's something that's put across all all events and it's a set of guidelines that you have to follow so as with um much of the uk now face masks are optional so they're not mandatory across everywhere so there will be you know that that will be part of our um sort of guidelines but the 
the NEC, so the NEC stands for the National Exhibition Centre. So it is our largest exhibition centre in the UK. And it is that because it's where you hold your exhibitions and events. So these guys have got all these measures and control measures under under lock from increasing hand washing facilities and also promotion of that, sanitising, additional cleaning. Um, some of the seating will be removed to help social distancing, you know, be in effect. Um, venue ingress and egress to ensure that there's no overcrowding and excessive queuing, um, to name a few of the measures. But we have a, and I mean, if this podcast could go on for the next 45 minutes, I could walk you through the <laughs> manual. But trust me, unless you're in operations, you don't want to go through all this with me. However, there are many measures um, and uh, initiatives in place to make sure that we hold a safe event because we we want the events industry in general to boom keep going we want to make sure it's safe and that people can come enjoy and have a great event um, just the way that we want them to great well you know i'm uh, certainly very uh, positive about it do you want to uh, remind listeners we did actually have a free ticket offer for listeners for long-term listeners if they've been the, uh, you know, listening to the show, they may well have snapped those up now, but I think that probably has expired. What's the situation if people want to buy uh, tickets? How much is it? Yes, so it's um, £10 entry for tickets. Um, so hopefully that shouldn't be, you know, sort of too much of a, a stretch for people to come come along and, and have a little look and, and get involved with the event. But, um, you know, I dare say if you're if you're parts of, of clubs like the Ski Club of Great Britain, um, there'll be special kind of discounts and competitions that you'll be able to still stay tuned in in with. Um, and amongst, if you're, again, on newsletters from, say, Crystal Ski Holidays, uh, Snow Dome at Tamworth, I'm sure that there'll be a few cheeky tickets flying around for people to grab a hold of. So, But if you go onto the website, you'll be able to see Book Your Tickets Now button yeah. um, and get involved. Okay, and and ten pounds is for adults. Is it still? Uh, do you still have to pay for kids? No, so children go free. Um, and again, all the kind of uh, details of that are all, all on the, the website. Um, but yeah, definitely check that out to get get the full details. And and yeah, just it, there's it's such a packed event. I mean, we only touched on the snow stage, but there's the snow skills cabin where there's educational pieces. You've got the VIP riders lounge, which is sponsored by Red Bull. We've got the indoor slope by Tamworth, Snowdome Tamworth. Greystone Action Sports are doing a skateboard mini ramp. Greenover are doing a carver board demo. Then we have all the brands there ranging from Nordica to Salomon, Carve, just a whole range. Dabella, Marco Vocal. I mean, there is everyone is there. So it's well oh, worth cool. coming down. And, and just out of interest, then, mm. why did you pick uh birmingham as opposed to you know london for example is you know the, the telegraph stopped that london show there's no yep. london show down here i you know i'm not london centric by any means i'm just interested in why you went for birmingham as opposed to london yeah there's there's a couple of um reasons for that so the show itself is built on three strategic pillars sustainability participation recruitment and retail so our participation and recruitment piece is essentially why the show exists is to get more people into the industry and being in Birmingham offers us much better accessibility to the whole of the UK. It's it's a weird one because um, London events seem to have a very London-centric audience and the propensity for anyone outside of London to come into it doesn't, it doesn't really exist. Whereas if you go to um, Birmingham at the NEC, 
you actually find that you get visitors from all over the UK. So people from London, you know, it's very easy to get up there. Then you're able to attract everyone from from a much wider catchment area across the UK. And plus, we've got access to, you know, the universities up there as well, which, again, feeds into our grassroots, more, more um, just more people into the industry, which is, as I said, you know, one of the real key drivers for the event. Yeah, well, I can say to you, a- anecdotally, when I used to uh, run Natives, we did all of the shows. You had to stand at all of the shows. And, you know, London was the biggest show in terms of numbers, uh, principally because it was a longer uh, show. Mm. But the Birmingham show, I always felt that the, what would you say, the the quality mm. of the visitor who came to Birmingham was much more committed. There were fewer people there who came who were just looking for a day out and more people who came who were really just genuinely interested in skiing. And that was their their focus that's why they turned up so another reason why I'm, I'm very excited about it you know as you say it's uh, in terms of the catchment area it's uh, it's very broad and uh, it would be remiss of me not to mention that uh, at the podcast itself we are going to be uh, um, live on the Sunday uh, of the show and um, when I'm going to be having um, Mike Richards joining me who listeners will uh, know who's talked to us previously about skiing in Wales and Georgia and Montenegro and places like that. We're going to be testing his knowledge. Uh, and I've also uh, asked um, Simon Burgess to join me as well, who skied, who was recently on the podcast talking about skiing in the Lake District, and he also has experience of Japan. So we're going to be doing a live episode of the podcast, which people are welcome to you know, come and listen to and find out a little bit more about principally skiing in the uk but we're going to touch on japan and other more esoteric areas of the world uh, as well so that's that's something to make sure you get into your diary listener uh if you're going to the show sunday is a day i'd obviously favor <laughs> <laughs> definitely no we, we we literally can't wait to to welcome people through the door and just get everyone infused and, and back into the, the snow sports industry cool well you know i'm really looking forward to it um, we will be featuring uh, again, uh, no doubt. Where are we now? Early September. So we've got about six weeks or so until the show itself. So um, that's brilliant, Steve. Thanks very much for that. And, uh, you know, really looking forward to uh, another consumer show for the first time in a couple of years. Well done for putting it together. No problem. Absolute pleasure. And thanks again, Ian. Always, always a pleasure. No problem. Um, turning to you, uh, Olivia, mountaineer is uh, how you're uh, described uh, around a lot of the internet. That sounds like a, a great job. Can you tell us a little bit about your okay. your background? Yeah. How did you get into the mountains? Um, I kind of I, I spent a lot of my childhood in Zermatt, so I was surrounded by mountaineers, climbers, um, the Alps. So it was a big part of me. Um, and then I pretty much got into it more so when I started university and I joined the mountaineering club. Um, and then started learning skills and then I progressed uh, in mountaineering and then yeah it just kind of took hold of me and became addicted to it and now I can't stop. <laughs> right okay you're addicted well I can see how you can get addicted to the mountains I absolutely yeah. you know, love that um, my, myself. You mentioned that you uh, you last skied about five years ago have you done much skiing are you a regular skier? I did it as a kid um but I'm not a regular skier no I I I prefer to be on my feet in the mountains right or or climbing yeah I prefer to be on my feet and and climbing the mountains yeah 
Right. And and so how did that transition from being, you know, a hobby and getting into university to being, you know, on the on the team for Mammut and, and other brands? Uh, it was all very natural, very organic. Um, I didn't like I didn't ask for it. It just came to me. Um, I think being female and, and doing things like this, um, it attracts brands because, you know, they're trying to get more females into the outdoors and into mountaineering and alpinism and everything else so when they do see a female who is a you know who's doing all this stuff it kind of you know they want to be a part of it so and they can try and um persuade and well you know inspire all the females to do it and then obviously that you know the, the project with Mamu being um celebrating uh, lucy walker who is a british mountaineer from liverpool and she it's a hundred the 150th anniversary this year that she climbed the mat well she climbed Maton, but she climbed a lot of other 4,000 metre peaks in the Alps. Um, she's very heroic. <laughs> um, after <laughs> into her, she was, she was incredible as a woman. Um, she conquered lots of things. Just like, to clarify then, that, that project uh, that you've been involved with was to celebrate the, the 150th anniversary of Lucy Walker making the first ascent by a woman of the Matterhorn. Yeah. And you were out in Zermatt to well uh, to emulate that is that right yeah oh, yeah to follow in her footsteps to retrace what she did and to celebrate it and to you know to inspire other women that you know 150 years later women are still women are still attempting to do these things and you know yeah it, it was it was really special but obviously unfortunately the weather <laughs> doesn't always play ball Right. So I think I'm right in saying that, uh, you know, you were there for a certain period of time and that that window just didn't really present itself to be able to summit the Matterhorn while you were there. Yeah, they had a really bad summer in terms of weather conditions on the Matterhorn and there's lots and lots of snow there. So, yeah, having Zermatters um, was guiding me up it um, and they just didn't want to take any risks um, in on the conditions on the Matterhorn. So they wouldn't let me summit it. And which is really respectable for keeping me safe and you know but that's just one of those things you can't control the weather it happens um and yet yeah, it's not my obviously i just go back next year and try it again <laughs> yeah well i i i can certainly back that up listeners who uh, listen to episode 76 of the podcast will know that i was out in zermatt you know a couple of weeks before you and my plan was to ski there on the glacier and it just happened that the day I was there, the weather was particularly bad and I just wasn't able to do it, yeah. which was really disappointing because I, my window was just a single day. But what can you do? You know, this is the mountains. And if the weather is bad, then you just have to run with it, don't you? Yeah, it's just exactly. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, people usually at this time in the Matterhorn, there's no snow on the ridge, but there was lots, lots of snow, and people were starting the route in crampons, which is just not the norm. Um, a lot of people got to a certain point on the ridge and turned around. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. So I just they didn't want me to risk it and even attempt it. I had an amazing week. Um, I met some cool people and, and I climbed. I I did some other climbing there. So yeah, it you know it was still really cool. Excellent. What else did you climb then while you were there? Uh, I did the Brighthorn Half Traverse, which was insanely cool, uh, like a, a ridge line. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Epic. I saw a photo then, actually on uh, on Instagram of uh, that. It looks like a, a very steep uh, uh, ridge. 
that was phenomenal yeah that was a really cool uh climb and then um we went on to the riffle hall which is rock climbing so we did some sport climbing on there which was really cool but you had the whole the glacier and what the monte rosa range in the background so when you're sport yeah. climbing the whole of the mon the, the um the monte range monte rosa range and the matterhorn are all in kind of the view range of it it's it's probably one of the best like in terms of rock climbing i've ever experienced um so that was that was really cool. So yeah, just even getting to to do a bit of climbing, sport climbing, and some alpinism, doing the half traverse was was super special to me to be able to do that. So yeah, well, I mean, Switzerland is a uh, um, a beautiful uh, country at any time of the year, but certainly you know in summer when you can get up high like that and admire some of the views, it is uh, pretty glorious. Um, I interviewed a couple of um, a couple of uh, I interviewed Martin Anthematon, who's a um, mountaineer, trail runner, um, ski mountaineer. While I was in Zermatt, did you come across him at all while you were out there? No, no, I didn't come across him. <clears throat> lots of he uh, he organizes the, uh, the he organizes the Zermatt Ultrax um, ultra marathon that happened uh, probably a couple of weeks after you left I would imagine something like that they might have been I preparing for it at the time yeah. right yeah. did you see the race or you saw the preparations for it uh I think we I can't I remember people talking about it because I'm sure yeah. when yeah I remember it's it sounds epic yeah <laughs> yeah and have you ever done any trail running is that something that you know you're interested in I've done a lot of trail running I've done two ultra marathons um, have you? Excellent. Yeah. Which ones have you done? They're both in the Lake District, so here in the yeah. UK. Um, but yeah, I did. I did them in the space of a month, so I did two thirty-two milers in a month, and I just went to kind of test my body and see my reaction. And yeah, it was. It was. I love trail running. I go through phases, so I need a goal to to be able to go out and push myself at trail running. Um, and yeah. like, like my end, like an end goal. So last year I entered. Um, the Glencoe skyline well I entered the Glencoe skyline but due to COVID I couldn't do it but when I have a certain goal um I will push myself at trail running because obviously it's really good for endurance and just an all-over yeah. kind of fitness yeah I don't know if you know this uh Olivia but um regular listeners will know I'm not a mountaineer but I'm very keen on trail running and I was out in Switzerland with a day I didn't get to go skiing in Zermatt. I was on a trail running trip in Switzerland uh, in July. And then I did a four-day fast-packing trip uh, on the Tour de Mont Blanc route. And all of that nice. was preparation for the UTMB uh, trail race. And that is a 171-kilometre uh, lap of Mont Blanc uh, with yeah. uh, 10,000 metres of vertical. And I did that last weekend. Uh, and, you know, it was... Um, pretty amazing event you know before when I first got my place back in January I had no idea really whether or not I'd be able to finish it but in the end um, I crossed the line in uh, 41 hours and 35 minutes wow you know I went through (laughs) I went through two nights without sleeping because you start six o'clock in the evening on the Friday and so you go through Friday night then you go through all of Saturday down into Cormier and then up on the other side into Italy and then the second night in uh, Switzerland from uh, Champy and then you bring yourself back through Trient and then Valocine and finished in Chamonix uh, in the morning and uh, wow what an amazing experience <laughs> you know it was I had such a good time and you know listeners 
I think to me, it was just such a privilege being out there. And I think you'll appreciate this, uh, Olivia, just being in the mountains, on the trails. You know, it's such a wonderful environment to uh, to be in. Um, you know, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's very special. Lots of freedom. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, just in general, spending time in Chamonix, I'm sure as a mountaineer, you spent a lot of time in Chamonix. Would that be right? I have. Yeah, I have spent mountain biking, mountaineering, alpinism, trail running. I've done it all in Chamonix. It's definitely a special place. Right. OK, well, we stayed there for um, around five days, you know, before and during the race as a family. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, back in listeners on episode 73, I interviewed Claire Burnett and they were doing a, a special offer for families or people who are staying in resort where you could get free activities. And we did that. We did some um, we did some biathlon, which was um, we didn't actually do obviously any cross country, but we got to um, fire down at the uh, range. We got instruction from this guy who gave us the kind of history of uh, a biathlon. And then we used uh, not actual bullets, but uh, laser uh guns makes it sound like something <laughs> of a movie yeah. but no laser uh, rifles and it's brilliant the um i had no idea that you have this kind of lcd display that shows you exactly where you've hit on the target so you can adjust and it gives you scores and time so that was brilliant fun completely free uh, kids did one of the park aventures like a go eight type thing the trees nice and then you said you've been biking. They went out e-biking uh, uh, as well uh, with a guide. And all of this was provided for free by Chamonix because, you know, they're looking to try and get people to go there in the summer. So you know, look out for That's that. For sure. Yeah, look out for that next year because, um, listen, I'm sure that offer will be around uh, again. And it really does. Uh, you know, Chamonix is already a great uh, destination, but that makes it, uh, you know, even better. Even better. Think, yeah, it does. Yeah, exactly. When everything's so expensive. Well, yeah. for sure. In fact, my wife told me she saw that the cost of hiring a bike was, I think it was 40 euros for a half day or something like that. So, yes. you know, it would have cost 120 euros, but, uh, you know, it was offered uh, for free. And that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we spent a lot of money on... Uh, on tests uh, for you know getting back and forth so that sort of thing you know makes uh wow. makes a lot of difference yeah it does yeah 100%. yeah you know jim uh, who reported from us in episode 76 from uh switzerland he went surfing and he also went skateboarding but he also tried biking himself while he was in Cron montana so let's have a listen to what he has to say I recently got to go to Crans Montana. Um, you heard it in a previous episode, I think, and we talked about surfing. But when I arrived, I got to do something pretty cool. Um, first of all, I was so excited about surfing the next day. I kind of wasn't that bothered when they said, would you like to go downhill mountain biking? I'm not a big downhill mountain biker. I've done it a few times here in the Clouser where I live. Um, the peace aren't very good. And I tend to do it by borrowing someone's bike Normally, I'm given a really rubbish bike, um, maybe with no brake, uh, at least one, poor suspension. So I've never really got into it and gone, oh, this is amazing. Anyway, we rocked up uh, to the meeting point where we were told to be. And we were given some amazing uh, dual suspension bikes. We went up the Crans Credia lift. And at the top from there, you've got a choice of three downhill runs. It's worth saying that the entire area in Crans Montana is actually covered in um, MTB or VTT um, 
pistes, but there are two, three specific downhills at the top of the Crédière uh, lift, and you've got a blue, a black, and a red. Now, obviously, when you go out with a guide, they take you down what they think is going to be the easiest one. So we went down a blue one, and it was pretty cool. It was really smooth. We were doing jumps, um, and it comes out uh, in a in a communal area where there's a, a bike park as well. So it's pretty cool. The guide we had was amazing. He was showing off, and I like that. We went up again. The clouds were starting to come in, and the rain was starting to fall. But was very excited to go back up again like i said i wasn't particularly keen on doing any of this but it turns out i really was had an amazing time the the red rundown is incredible it's so smooth well groomed it flows beautifully and at the beginning you come round um the mont le chat uh the mont show the mont le show um ridge you feel really really exposed and your left is just a big drop and you sweep around huge vistas you're taking in the opposite side of the valley you're taking in the valley below it's an incredible feeling to top that was on really good suspension bikes and flowing nicely down the track it was a, a very exciting exciting experience i'm really glad i did it um considering I wasn't that keen on it. So yeah, if you if you go mountain biking in Transport Town, it's it's incredible. Uh, if if the rest of the runs are as well kept as the two I managed to get in before the rain absolutely hammered it down, then it's really worth going if you're into into mountain biking. And it set me up beautifully um, for a few glasses of wine at the, the Trubuchon uh, wine bar where we met uh, Pierre-Henri, our guide, and afterwards he dropped us off at the La Mayenne, um a restaurant where we had a raclette buffet it was amazing you got to try four different cheeses from the region and i was thinking oh this can all taste the same but turns out every single one of them tasted different anyway that was my experience in crans montana um, biking and eating cheese so that was jim uh, he had a great time there biking so i definitely you know recommend that if you're in the mountains uh whether it's you know winter or summer you can try uh, e-biking they have all of these fat bikes now which get really good grip on the uh, snow verbier is a big resort for e-biking but it's also known as the home of faction skis sorry it's where its founder tony mcwilliam lives and uh, where his first skis were sold and I spoke to him last uh, month and it, his is really a fascinating story of a guy. He always had complete belief in himself and his designs. And, uh, you know, it really paid off. They went from, you know, 44 skis in his first year to selling 30,000 plus now. So let's have a listen to that. The early 2000s was just such a, a fantastic time for British skiing, let alone everything else. Um, and I, being Australian originally, I'd just come over to Europe. Uh, I'd just come to London. I'd done a season in Des Alpes and one in Les Arcs and then uh, come to, came to London. Um, and it just seemed like everything was going on in London. The, the dry slope scene, um, the, you know, Warren and all his courses, um, the, just everything seemed to kind of focus around natives at that time because you guys were like the centre Oh. Well, I mean, that's, that's very kind of you to say so. I mean, it was a very dynamic and a very exciting time just then. And in fact, I interviewed um, Pat Sharples a little while ago. Mm. And we were talking about, you know, that really exciting time when um, British free skiing or uh, uh, free riding was, you know, really starting to develop. And you mentioned, yeah. uh, you know, Warren as well. And yeah, you know, it was just such an exciting time. And it's interesting to see how it's uh, how it's developed. And really... 
faction skis kind of rolled with that i'd say to a certain degree yeah a lot of it came out of it because i had so many friends in the english snow sports team snow sports scene and one of them in particular a guy called phil martin who is english but now living in the states uh in tahoe i think he was the first person when I, I I found this little factory in just south of Evian who wanted to make skis. And my background was in product design. I've got a product design degree before I moved into graphics. Um, and I contacted Phil and Phil went, oh, this is really cool. I'll email all my friends. And literally within a couple of weeks, I had 50 people go, yeah, I'll have a pair of those. And it was all through Phil Martin. That is um, so interesting because, as I'm sure you know, Phil and I used to work together, and people yeah. used to regularly assume that we were brothers because <laughs> we both we both oh, yeah. had the same surname Martin, and we were working uh, for Natives together. But mm. I didn't realise I knew he had Verbier connections, but I didn't realise he was quite like that. So, what year was it that you actually started Faction itself? So we'd been I'd been living out in Lezark, you know, the Republic of Valandry. As, uh, as they like to call it out there, which was which was lovely, such a cool little resort. And I think that was kind of 2000, 2001, 2002. I was meeting a lot of guys like Jim Adlington, Gordy Hughes, um, photographers like Mike Truelove, um, Ross Woodall, all those guys. Uh, even Americans like Matt Reardon, who seemed to be in the Ellis Brigham catalog for like five years straight or Snow Rock, I don't know, can't remember. Um, but so 2003 was when I first kind of put it all together and the name kind of came to me and the ski line kind of came to me and it, it was a, I'd already been painting people's skis and snowboards for a couple of years, um, just for the fun of it. And then this kind of opportunity, there's something just clicked in my head and I went, well, why don't I make skis? There were no fat skis at the time. The fattest ski was like Solomon super mountain, which was about 80 mil wide. Um, and the Solomon 1080 had just come out, the Rosie Power had just come out. Guys like Evan Raps were coming over to the, the ski show in London. Board, was it called Bordex? Yeah, there was a Bordex thing down in Battersea. They Battersea, used to uh, yeah, have yeah. an event there. Yeah, that was awesome. And you'd get a lot of the freestyle skiers coming out and doing the doing Bordex, the snowboard shoot, which was really great just seeing this kind of the the disciplines kind of cross over and everyone just being excited about going out of the mountains and doing things different how do you actually you know you think right okay you telling me you were painting people's skis you know doing bespoke skis or boards etc and design is your background you had some great ideas but how do you actually go about making a bunch of skis well <laughs> yeah the first ones were not quite right let's put it that way um, but what I was lucky to have a few guys that I met that kind of mentored what I was doing. Um, Peter Bauer, who runs Amplid, I met him really early on, and he was a product designer and a product manager for Burton for many years. And he just kind of opened up everything and talked to him about the process. We went and visited a few factories together and actually used a factory that he ran for a year or two. Um, and he kind of just took me through all that process and we spent a lot of time talking about side cuts and flexes and shape and things like that. Just so where, where was the, the factory that he introduced you to where you first got them made? So we, st the, the first year was in a little place south of Evian, which is the same factory that started movement skis. And right. then that first year was kind of a bit of a learning experience. And then I met Pete after that and we moved to a factory in Austria which I cannot actually remember the name anymore because it was so long ago. No we problem. Did, 
Um, we did uh, we did kind of two years there, and then we attended ISPO for the first time, and literally Pete dropped off the fact dropped off the skis at our ISPO booth for the first year, and it was the first year at ISPO. We were really excited, and he went, "Oh, by the way, the factory can't make the skis anymore because <laughs> we were too small." Um, so that kind of created this process of just a search for for factories that could help us out. And skis aren't the most complicated products in the world, but to get them in low volumes um, and low warranty rates, i.e. to create a product which is just a, a low volume but consistently well is difficult. You're saying there weren't so many kind of wide skis at the time. In your first ranges, what were they coming in at then? We were, our first range was, uh, what was it? It was 80 and then 100, 110. And at the time we were like, oh my God, 110 mil waist. Shit, that's just, no one's <laughs> going to be able to ski on it. Um, and, yeah, I know. And now you're like, yeah, 110, that's, that's every day. Um, and but at the time it was nuts. And then kind of a few years later, I tried a pair of K2, I think it was the Hellbent, which was pretty much the first kind of reverse camber fat ski. So over 110, that was about 120. And it was the first time I tried anything with Rocker on it. And suddenly we were like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. Um, and I'd skied with Shane McConkie, for example, a few years before, because I used to do the IFSA free ski comps, which is where I met Phil Martin as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so it was a really small, this is before the World Tour, before all that stuff. And it was just a really small group of people who used to travel around and sleep on friends' floors and do these comps everywhere. Um, so I met a lot of guys through that as well. And seeing a lot of things that were happening um, and Shane was obviously playing around with shapes and he was going pretty far towards reverse camber, reverse side cut, et cetera. But my, my focus had always been on build, trying to build a ski that, you know, if you're a seasonaire, you could, you could afford, but it was the one ski that you could just do everything on all the time. It was the one ski you needed, you know, it was, it was, it was back when we were all sleeping on people's floors and kind of living yeah. mountain mountain. You know. <clears throat> so are we talking about what people might describe now as an all mountain ski, that type of Yeah. Yeah, now it would be an all mountain ski. Yeah. But back then it was, you know, a fat ski. The early Seth Pistol days. Um, what else is around about that time? Yeah, 110, 120. And then when I when I kind of started playing with reverse camber and rocker, that was when everything really started to make sense. Cause I was pretty much the only brand really that liked stiff skis yeah i liked i had a lot of friends early on um were I'd, I'd done a season in canada early on in my life so i i had a lot of friends in north america as well and canadians just love sit stiff straight skis so a lot of the skis i bought out early on were stiff and straight and when you've got reverse camber for example reverse camber is basically the shape a soft ski deforms to so it will float so if you press a ski with reverse camber, you don't actually need it to flex any further. You know, the only reason you want it to flex any further is to make it a little bit forgiving so it's not kicking you out of the back and seat it, all the time. And it's kind of a, a perhaps harder for a listener now to kind of visualize, you know, what you're talking mm. about in that faction were kind of in the lead of innovation through all of that time with the different elements you're bringing in, whether it's the, the width of the ski or the rockers or reverse camber, yeah. et cetera. I mean, you mentioned the Seth, Seth pistol there. What, what I seem to remember about those skis where they had great graphics and that yeah. was a key part of all of your ranges. Now, you know, you mm. are a designer. How did you go about actually deciding which, 
which graphics to put on the skis because that must have been a massive was, decision. It was, I, it was quite easy actually because it was my decision. I was like, I want to do this. I'm doing this. I didn't have you know a massive sales team to report to. I didn't have a, a marketing team who ever wanted to kind of give feedback on and everything. And um, by the time it happened, or by the kind of 2007, 2008, we started getting sales guys on board um, and it started growing organically. Um, and at that point, everyone kind of has input. And at that point, you kind of, you have to fight for the designs you do and where they came from. But early on, early on, I mean, I was, I'd grown up in Melbourne, so there's a lot of street art. Um, London at the time, there was a lot of street art as well. And I, I used to just kind of go off on travels and, and go on trips and just get inspired by what was happening around me. And at the time too, like the, the early 2000s, there wasn't any skis with interesting graphics on, apart from Jamie Strachan doing stuff for vocal. So uh, the early explosives uh, with the wizards on, um, all that stuff. He did some amazing art. And again, he was part of that UK scene at the time of people who seemed to be pushing the industry. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Strachan, you mentioned him. In, in, downstairs, in our downstairs loo here, I've got a couple of posters from the... Um, the Sham Jam from back in the oh, day. Yeah. And that was his stuff, I think, yeah. as well, wasn't it? And it really stands out. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, yeah. He did amazing work. And there was a few other brands kind of got on it as well. Rosie had a whole series of art skis, which were fantastic. And I think, you know, when you're, when you're starting a business, it's easy to see everyone out there as competitors because you're really fighting for, like, I need every sale. God, I need to build this business kind of thing. But my viewpoint was very different. Like Pete, who was starting Amplet, I mean, we did a whole heap of stuff together and he had his own vision and where he wanted to go. Um, uh, you know, I met a lot of the guys. So Jason Leventhal, uh, Matt Sturbin's over at Forefront, the guys who started Amada. Like we were a really small group of people and all we were trying to do was take market share from Atomic and Rosignol and Solomon, <laughs> you know? like So we, we'd go out to these things like, you go out to the States and you do the free skier magazine tests or the uh, you know, Ellis Brigham or the four line magazine tests. And it's the same group of people. We're all traveling together. We're all moving together. And we're all just inspired by what everyone's doing, um, which I think is quite unique. Like, I don't think in many industries you get a lot of people working who would naturally be seen as competitive, actually working together. I mean, Jim and I, for example, I mean, Jim and I worked across next to each other on trade halls for 10 years, both at ISPO and in North America at trade shows over there. So I spoke to Jim a couple of weeks ago and we've always stayed in touch because what he's doing with planks is really cool and really complimentary to what we're doing, for example. Yeah, I mean, so it's sometimes it's easy to kind of think that um, any industry is really small, but there is a certain feel, I yeah. think, within the snow sports industry that makes it makes it work in a different way when you first did your first range how many how many pairs of skis did you do in the first year how many pairs of skis did you make 44 pairs of skis <laughs> and i know pairs. I, I know because i picked them up in i knew nothing i had just moved to verbier i rented a car i drove over to the factory which is just across the border in Evian, so south of lake geneva and i picked up the skis and they were like right it's christmas eve uh you do know that the customs you know, the border shuts uh, like half an hour ago. How are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to declare them? You have to pay tax on them and everything. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> tax? Yeah. Import fees? Declarations? <laughs> what? And so I literally put them in the back of the car, put a blanket over them 
and drove across the border, just crossing my fingers the whole way, hoping I would not be stopped. And it was Christmas Eve. It was packed. Like there were so many cars, they weren't stopping anybody. So they just let us go through. And I'm like, well, <laughs> thank God for that. Do you know faction skis at all, Olivia? Uh, no, I have actually heard of them. Yeah, I have heard of them. And I've been to Verbier a lot. Um, it's one of the places I go regularly on a, a yearly basis to bike. So, Right, that's really interesting because they are uh, really trying to carve out a reputation for e-biking there. They uh, have held a race there the last couple of years and I've been uh, tempted to go out there and have a look. What, what makes Verbier so good for biking, would you say? Oh, the trails are insanely good. It, it, I, there's something about it. I think it's the vibe as well. Um, I've been for like four years in a row. Um, I think because everybody's a biker and it, it's just cool. It's a really cool place. Mm. Yeah, the trails are, are, are like the best trails I've ever ridden. I don't ride e-bike. Um, I ride just uh, a mountain bike. Um, okay. Suspension. I, I daren't go on an e-bike because I know once I go, I won't go back. So I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> um, right. But in, but in terms of trails, like unbelievable. I mean, I'm probably, I'm not a beginner, but I'm not like advanced in terms of mountain biking, but I will definitely throw myself down anything. And, you know, you just get, it's just really cool, the trails. Um, you just get a variety of different things. And obviously the scenery is out of this world. Really and cool. you're happy to you do like a um, you know downhill uh, mountain biking as well then yeah do you? yeah I do well yeah obviously Verbier is downhill but I I actually do it on um a, an enduro bike um right I have a one sixty travel on my front fork so it's plenty for me because I'm only fifty kilograms so literally I don't even use the full, the full travel when I'm doing downhill yeah I do downhill like all over the UK um. I've done quite a lot in, in the Alps and, and Verbier just being one of those places that I always go back to because it's just so awesome. Great. I yeah. mean, there's a couple of really good photos on your Instagram of you carrying your bike. You know, you're doubling up the fitness in those uh, instances. Yeah, I have a bit of a love for hiker bikes. So I have this this passion for carrying it and then riding it. I, I, just, I just seem to get more out of it. <laughs> Like I'm working hard for that enjoyment of riding down rather than just getting like a chair lift up. Or... That's definitely <laughs> going to work for uh, fitness uh, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I like uh, challenges, but I've never considered carrying my bike uh, up the hill. Um, but that's brilliant. That's really good. So, um, yeah, I like I mentioned faction skis uh, just then. Again, regular listeners will know Alan Morgan. He's been on our show before. Uh, ski kit info he's still waiting to get hold of factions uh, new range for this winter but this is alan uh, his review of the faction dictator 3.0 free ride ski from last year this is the faction dictator 3 and we've heard this story before it's a poplar wood core and yes you've guessed it it's two layers of metal now I thought it was going to be a bit of a beast because Faction can make some really burly skis. But just before last season they changed this ski and it's much more usable. The conditions are slightly challenging today, it's really flat light and the snow's heavier. And at lower speeds it was so easy to use your ski, I could get it around the turn nicely. And the beauty in it being a bit more stable as well is when there's a compression that I didn't see, 
I didn't feel at risk like I was going to fall over the ski, just handled it really nicely. If you are an advanced skier and you want something to charge, yes, it will still do that, but the beauty is it's a bit more friendly and will suit a broader range of skiers now. Uh, right, I'd like to thank everyone who bought me a coffee since our last podcast. It's very kind of you. Uh, thanks to these guys for their feedback and reviews. Uh, Tom Brownlee says, keeping me going during this ski-less time. Uh, Matt Hayes, fantastic pods as ever. Thank you very much, Matt. Andrew Brannan, two episodes to keep me going uh, during August. Uh, cheers for that. Uh, Peter S., who's on the uh, website Snowhead, said, uh, an excellent discussion about the prospects for ski holidays this winter and a good report from Switzerland. I must listen to more of your podcasts now. Keep up the excellent work. Uh, so thank you for that, uh, Peter. Uh, Roddy McDonald said, enjoy the podcast, keeping the faith for the upcoming season, both abroad and here in Scotland. And John White says, I'm enjoying your chats with everyone back in the day when I was in the industry. So I really do appreciate reading all the feedback about the show. And if you'd like to give us any, please email theskipodcast.gmail.com. And if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts or, or whatever platform you listen to, then that'd be great as well, because it, it genuinely does help people find us. Uh, and if, of course, if you enjoy listening to podcasts, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. All cuppers converted into tea uh, will be much appreciated. And uh, we give back to, uh, we still have a few stickers left. If you'd like some for your skis, board or helmet, or phone, uh, drop me an email uh, with your email address and uh, with your postal address and I'll send them out to you. So um, coming up as we get nearer the season, we're going to find out more about equipment and all the changes and developments for the coming season. We'll keep our eye on the travel rules and most importantly, the, ski, uh, the snow forecast. Uh, and I'd like to thank our guest today, Stephen and uh, Olivia. Thank you, Olivia. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. No problem. And finally, I'd like to thank you, listener, for joining us. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye.